Father, we come here today with probably weary hearts and, and, and tired bodies. We, we've come to behold you. Sure, we've come to praise and worship and adore you because you're worthy of that, but Lord, we need to see you. So I pray that as we go to your word, that you would speak, that we might behold your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Last week, we covered a text where Jesus' authority was acknowledged by a man who was ritually and physically unclean by being a leper. Uh, That authority was then confirmed when Jesus both touched and healed that leper, removing uh, from the man the disease that made him unclean. This week, I'm not used to this being on this side, so now I'm hitting it with my Bible every time I come near it. So now I've got to get used to being able to weight myself more on this side. So, sorry. There we go. Uh, so this week, uh, we have a man who should by no means have acknowledged Jesus' authority. A man who is an invader to the Jewish nation. A man who, although he's recognized by Jewish leaders in another book of the Bible as someone, but, but he's, he's, he's still an outsider. So even if he's recognized well, he's not among those that Jesus came to. Yet here, even he acknowledges Jesus' position or authority and position, his standing and ability over an affliction that nobody of that time period would have had any ability to care for. This acknowledgement, honestly, is astounding, and Jesus himself even acknowledges how astounding this man's faith is. So may we, if God be so kind to us today, have a similar commendation from the Lord the king and creator of the universe. So let's read our text for the day. So Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the word of the Lord. So let's, let's recap the order of events here as Matthew records them. Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he does this for hours, days, and on his trip back down the mountain as he is inevitably exhausted. I mean, I preach for 20 to 40 minutes 
20 if I'm really aiming well, 40 if I'm not paying attention. Uh, but I preach for 20 to 40 minutes, and I'm done for the day. Jesus, however, on his way down this mountain, encounters a leper and heals him in front of great crowds. Then he returns back to Capernaum. And I say back to Capernaum because Jesus had set up kind of a home base in Capernaum. We find that out in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. Now, Capernaum was a predominantly Gentile region on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, in this region, there was apparently a well-known Roman centurion. Presumably, because he's a centurion, he was a commander of a hundred troops. Centurion. Um, so so you, they would group, the Romans would group soldiers in groups of a hundred, put a centurion over the groups of a hundred. And there would also be smaller companies throughout that. So this centurion is actually a commander of essentially, I don't know, sergeants, would you say? Like little, little platoons within that hundred. So um, when, when we read of this version, of, or, re, or when we read a different version of this story in Luke 7, we find that the centurion was actually well thought of by the Jews in the area. And he, he, instead of going himself, he sends the elders of the Jews to go to plead for Jesus' help. And the elders actually say, this man has done a lot for our nation. He's, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. Do what he asks, please. The elders plead for the man. Now, Matthew has obviously re removed that fact when we read it. Um, and that's not really a problem. I know there's going to be people that would argue that it's a problem, but it's not really a problem. And it's not really a problem for two reasons. Reason number one, when you send a message to someone, nowadays it would be an email or a text. When the person reads it, do they say, the phone sent me a message? No, they say, oh, that's so sweet. Ben sent me a text. I'm glad that he, he sent me a text and I can read it. The same thing was true in the ancient world. If you sent a messenger, then it's the same thing as you asking, a, a, or like bringing a request before someone. So therefore, we can still read Matthew's version and think that it's the same as the centurion himself going to Jesus. Reason number two that it doesn't matter is because none of the facts in this story have changed. If you were to open up to Luke 7 and read the account in Luke 7, that would really be the only difference. The actions of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. If we read in Luke 7 that Jesus decided not to heal the paralyzed man, then we would care because that is a discrepancy. But ultimately, nothing really changed. Matthew omitting a fact doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the story. It doesn't, it, it, and, and honestly, if we were to sit here and judge and say, well, since that's not in Matthew, ultimately we're, we're telling God, you didn't get your facts straight when you inspired these words. And that would be a sin. So let's focus on what's true in the text, whether it was the centurion or whether it was messengers, it's still the centurion pleading for help from Jesus. In verse 6, we have the centurion referring to Jesus as Lord, which is the same thing in, in Luke's account. Uh, and we've established that when somebody goes up to somebody and says, Lord, it can really just mean sir. It would be like, uh, like, like me going to the gas station, rolling down the window, and the guy says, uh, says what do you want? Which he doesn't really say. Usually the guy at the gas station says, uh, what do you need today, or something like that. But, but, I, but if I were to say, sir, I need to fill up my car. It can be something that's just polite. 
However, when we read the centurion say it in verse 6, when he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, I don't think the centurion meant it just as sir. To be paralyzed at that time meant there was no cure, period. Maybe you'd get over it. Maybe it was, a, maybe it was something that, that, uh, that, that was an illness that caused some sort of a spinal problem, and so the person would lie paralyzed. But a doctor couldn't come in, give an injection, do an operation, and cure this person. So when he, sends, or when he talks to Jesus and he says, Lord, my servant is lying, lying paralyzed at home, he's actually acknowledging Jesus' authority, his authority to remove the paralysis and his authority to help his servant. So I don't think he just meant it as sir. Hey, sir, you think you could remove this deadly and debilitating disease from this person that I know? That would be really cool, man. I don't think he meant it that way. I think he was desperate. He cried out saying, Lord, would you please do this? And this centurion shouldn't even approach a rabbi. Centurions, honestly, um, they, they, they're, they're not in the right standing, the right position to approach a Jewish teacher at the time. You, uh, Jesus was unique in the fact that the average person could come to him and make a request, such as a leper or a centurion. But this request that he gives um, would not be something you'd ask just anyone either. You can't just go to your neighbor when you, you know, say you're going to go to your neighbor and ask for a cup of sugar, right? You wouldn't go to your neighbor and say, hey, my kid is uh, dying in the corner. Can you go, like, help him? That would, be, that, that would be nice. An example, for instance, yesterday uh, there was a man walking in front of our building carrying a birdcage and a fishing pole. I have no idea why those two things were with him. I, I, I didn't go to ask because it looked like he was talking on the phone. Um, but maybe he was going to go fishing and use the birdcage to carry his fish. I don't know. I want to I assume that he's sane first off. But, but anybody that you know, might need to carry bird, like fish in a birdcage, maybe that's his one container, right? Probably not someone I would go to and say, hey, can you give me a million bucks? I, I know that there would be a limitation. If a man's walking with a birdcage and a fishing pole, there's, there, there, I, there, I, I have no reason to think that he's going to just give me a million dollars. Or that may, maybe, I, maybe I, uh, I, I wouldn't go to him and ask for medical advice for paralysis either. You don't just ask for this incredible miracle from just anybody. No, when the centurion asked Jesus to heal his paralyzed servant, the centurion is putting in a request to a person whose reputation has preceded him. Jesus is well known in Capernaum. Jesus has uh, tried to keep on the down low. He's told people that he's healed, don't talk to anybody, just do the thing. For instance, the leper that we just talked, uh, talked about last week. Go show yourself to the, to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded. Don't talk to anybody. But that's not what happened. People would go and spread the fame of Jesus. So this centurion has somehow heard of Jesus, heard that he's miraculously able to do these pretty crazy things, and he goes to him with a, with a ridiculous request, being a person that should not have the ability to go to him in the first place, and says, heal my servant. He's paralyzed and suffering. 
Now, some forms of paralysis, by the way, make you numb. You don't know that you're suffering. But apparently, this guy was really suffering, so much so that his own master goes and pleads for, for mercy from Jesus. So that brings us to point number one. And there's no PowerPoint. So if you're filling in the, the, the things, listen closely. Because point number one is Jesus's authority will be acknowledged by surprising people. To be a centurion, this man would have probably been raised in a Gentile nation. He would have probably been trained in warfare, not, uh, not, not diplomacy. He would have proved his worth through battle. And then most likely, he would have been dispatched and stationed outside of his own native homeland to go occupy this Jewish country. He would have probably had another religion that he was indoctrinated with. He probably would have been in the Roman nationalistic religion, which was uh, a plurality of, of, of deities that all did different things. Yet here he stood so amazed at Jesus' reputation that he begs Jesus that he might heal his servant. Why would he do that? I hope we've all known people who have become Christians who we never thought would have. In fact, I hope most of us would be those very people that we were surprised that we came to Christ, that we came to faith. The grace of God brings the most unlikely people to Christ. And therefore, Jesus' authority will be acknowledged by surprising people. Now, again, the centurion goes to Jesus with a request to heal his servant. Some actually mix this event with the healing of the official son in John 4, 46 to 54. But these are two different events, the centurion versus the official. Um, the, the, they're, they're, I, I read a very expansive commentary on all the rationale of why it could possibly be the same event, and I'll spare you the details. Just know that there's distinctives that show it as different. So this servant that he's asking for help from is not actually his son, but it's someone that he values very highly. The servant, again, in this case, is paralyzed and suffering. He's suffering terribly. And I find it interesting when he gives the example, just skipping ahead a little bit, when he says, uh, I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I wonder if he's thinking about that particular servant. He could be thinking of any range of servants, but, but thinking of how the servant used to listen to him. He's valuable. He's cared for. And the centurion wants the servant's pain ceased. Which, I mean, at the time, you could have just killed your servant. Like, you're not serving me well enough. Here's a sword for dinner. But instead, the centurion shows compassion. What wonderful compassion. Have you ever had someone show you that compassion who should have left you in the gutter, and yet they, 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 they drag you out? They do everything they can to help you. Well, the most incredible thing that they could do is reach out to Christ for you. Be praying for those people, just as a side note. Be praying for those people who you are sure would never become Christians because God just might actually answer it. 
Jesus responds to the centurion's compassion, right? He actually responds with a double emphatic, which when we look at uh, verse 7 in English, and he said to him, I will come and heal him, we don't really get the double emphatic. Verse 7 could actually be translated, I myself will come and heal him. As in, I'm not going to dispatch one of my apostles. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to, um, you know, call, call up uh, this guy Luke, who's a physician, and have him come take a look. No, Jesus actually says, I will do it myself. Uh, Jesus, what, uh, so just, just by way of illustration, right? You ever, you ever been told by your spouse that something's not working or uh, that you need, uh, you need help with something? And, uh, and, and you say, oh, I'll take care of it. And then, then your spouse or family member goes, okay, when? And you're like, listen, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to do it myself. Don't worry about it. Take a back seat. Anybody ever have that happen? Raise your hand if you've had that happen. All right, good. There's at least three of us. So <laughs> now Jesus wasn't responding in indignancy or he wasn't upset, but he was being emphatic. He was saying, I will go myself. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll go heal your servant. And responding to this honor, this wonderful mercy of Jesus coming and doing exactly what he asked him, how does the centurion respond? What does he realize? He stumbles and he goes, wait, no, 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 no. I didn't mean you go to my place. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of you coming under my roof. I'm not worthy of your mercy of, of, and, and grace of coming and doing the thing. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I know that you can do this from afar. The biblical commentator Matthew Henry actually has a, a little note. And if you've ever read in Matthew Henry's commentaries, he just like in the middle of paragraphs throws the sentence that starts with note. And they're just the most amazing one-liners. And he, he, puts, he puts this one-liner in there uh, saying, humble souls are made more humble by Christ's gracious condescensions to them. Let's read that again. Humble souls are made more humble by Christ's gracious condescensions to them. That's what happened with this man. All of a sudden, he realizes Jesus is going to do exactly what he asked. And he becomes humbled because Jesus is going to condescend to his level, going to go to his very home, do the exact same thing he asked. And he, he, he's, he, his heart is melted and he says, I am not worthy to have you do that. When Jesus condescends to your level, to my level, we have two basic responses, right? We can either become prideful and conceited thinking how worthy we are of God's favor. Or we realize how completely unworthy we were in the first place for God to hear us, and even more unworthy that he might answer us. We have our hearts humbled that the Lord would do as we asked. We should obviously respond in the latter. We are not here to judge God. We are not here to tell God what to do. We are not here to demand that God do things for us. Instead, when we cry out to the Lord, we should have in the back of our minds, the back of our hearts, Lord, I am not worthy to even speak to you, and yet you, you listen. Which brings us to point number two. 
We should be grateful when God gives us gifts of mercy. We're not worthy for the Lord to condescend to our level. And that really adds a whole depth to the incarnation, doesn't it? For Jesus to even come to condescend, to, to let go of his divine rights of just coming and smashing the world with a hammer. He comes down. When God condescends to our level, it should make us more humble. It should make us more grateful people. And humility and gratefulness, honestly, are hallmarks of a Christian. If you are not humble and if you are uh, not grateful, that's a problem. There, uh, humility and gratefulness are so great hallmarks that even in Matthew 23, 12, Jesus says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Therefore, be grateful, friends. Be humbled by God's good providence, by his good condescensions to your level when he rescues you from both great and small things. I, I joke about mountain lions all the time, but I'm serious. When I come over on Sunday mornings, really early in the morning, I, I, I get in the door and I breathe a sigh of relief that built into that sigh is, Lord, thank you for not letting me get eaten by a mountain lion on the way over. I'm just, I'm just terrified. They're around every corner to me. Um, which last week I did hear one, and I was convincing myself I didn't hear one uh, call until somebody posted on Facebook, like the Toledo Community Board, like, hey, just a heads up, there's a mountain lion walking behind my house, and it was a house over there. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> so they are here. They're everywhere. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Um, but we should, we, should be great, we should be humbled and grateful at God at all times. The centurion fully acknowledged Jesus' authority by seeing that Jesus can just say the word and my servant will be healed. That's in verse 8, by the way. Uh, but he, God is the one who spoke the world into existence, did he not? He created everything from nothing. The Latin term ex nihilo, out of nothing. And this Gentile, this uneducated guy in the Jewish faith, recognizes that Jesus is the one who can speak, and the disease, the paralysis, vanishes. And the centurion gives this wonderful illustration of the fact using his own experiences as a commander, doesn't he? The illustration is of a person under authority. Uh, that's in verse 9. Um, he says, and I, I too am a man under authority. Now, under authority in English predominantly means that you have an authority over you, right? You're underneath. If you're under the thumb of a boss... It means that you sit under the boss. But what, what the centurion is actually meaning is that he's been entrusted with authority. He's been given authority. And we know that by his illustration. Um, but, but the centurion, when, the example that he gives uh, is, is, again, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What an illustration of God's authority. The centurion is a man under authority with soldiers under him. But Jesus doesn't just have soldiers that obey him. 
diseases and problems and paralyses themselves obey him as if they were his soldiers. Satan is a dog on a leash, but God is the one who determines how long the leash. Best example I can think of for that is like a flexi leash, right? But imagine one that can crank back as far as he, wa as far as he wants at the same time. But I love the flexi leash with Lily. No idea what we did with it. But if I want to let her run, run ahead of me, I can just kind of kind of let go of the button, and I hear it whiz, 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 and then I just press the button to lock it up when she's gone far enough. Satan is like that. Diseases are like that. Viruses are like that. Pandemics are like that. Plagues are like that. Cancer is like that for God. When Jesus says go, they go. And when Jesus says come, they come. If we're really to follow the centurion's example, honestly, if we're really to acknowledge that God is all-powerful, all-controlling, and he's all-able, there is no theological term, by the way, for all-able. Uh, all-powerful is omnipotent. All-controlling would be sovereign. All-able doesn't exist. So I'm making up a word. I'm pulling a Paul here. I'm making up a word. Paul the Apostle, not you. Sorry, Paul. Uh, but, but God is all able. His power is all able. If we're going to mimic this centurion and mimic his faith, then we're going to have to recognize, honestly, that our afflictions and ailments really are in the hands of God. And most of the time we can acknowledge that, right? We can say, okay, this thing I'm suffering through, Lord, it's in your hands. But somehow when we say in your hands, we, we, in our mind, we do this, right? As if we're giving it to God, but it's already there. God already has it. And part of trusting, part of having this faith like the centurion does, is not just acknowledging that it can go when it pleases, but also recognizing that it comes when it pleases. That there's goodness somehow behind it. And when the centurion uh, well, just, just as a side note, I realize many of you are suffering. I realize many of you are going through hard times. You've got, you've, you've got rebellious kids. I'm looking at you guys. No, I'm just kidding. You've got, <laughs> some of you have rebellious kids. Some of you uh, are suffering through the effects of debilitating diseases and illnesses. Some of you feel no possible freedom. And I'm sure this year of COVID has in no way helped that. But whether plague, virus, financial struggle, life circumstance, or anything else, nothing is outside the control of God. God does not drop plates. You ever seen those guys that try to juggle plates, like in old movies, where they spin the plate on the really big stick? And then you kind of hope the whole time, oh, I hope he drops that one. Ah, oh, man, he just shifted his foot. If only there was a rock there that he could... Whoa, whoa. Carl, Rick, and I were watching fail videos on YouTube on my phone the other day. You know what a fail video is? It's a video of someone failing, and it's almost always funny. America's Funniest Home Videos has made that a market, <laughs> and it's just gone onto YouTube. So, so much more on YouTube. You don't have to wait for AFE to come on. But, but God is not like that. God does not fail. God does not drop the spinning plates. Instead, all the spinning plates are subject to his control. That's a hard truth. It's a really hard pill to swallow, especially when you're going through hard times. 
but when you have the faith to entrust it to God, to know that it's not something you give him, but it's something you just have to stop holding on to, when you know that, that, that God is the, the, the bringer of both darkness and light, when you know that everything is subject to him, you might have a faith that Jesus marvels at, just like the centurion. So when Jesus responds to this wonderful illustration that the, that the centurion gives, he hears this and he marveled. When we read the word marvel in, in, in the Greek, it can mean awe, it can mean surprise, it can mean sitting there like, whoa. But when Jesus hears this and he marvels, Jesus is not surprised. We can remove that straight from there because this sort of faith is exactly what God gives people. Uh, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And the it refers to the grace, the salvation, and the faith. It's a really complicated th way that Paul said it, but it was brilliant. So Jesus is not confused. He's not befuddled, which is a great word. Uh, he's not surprised when the centurion says it, when the centurion has this faith. No, this sort of marveling is Jesus' joyful staring at. Don't you want to be joyfully stared at by Christ? And that brings us to point number three. God is glorified when our trust in him is displayed in our lives. Again, God is glorified when your trust in him is displayed in your life. Jesus, in expressing his joy at this Gentile's trust in Jesus' ability and authority turns to those around him. Just, I just want to point that out. He doesn't say this to the centurion or his messengers or whatever. He, he turns to everyone else, <laughs> everyone else around him, and, he's, and, and he extols the, the, the strength, the capacity, the, the wonder of this man's trust in him, so much so that he compares this Gentile's faith as almost monolithic in comparison to anyone in Israel. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, that's actually a pretty big uh, punch in the gut. Because Israel was the people that was supposed to receive and be the keepers of and be the practitioners of the law and the promises. Everything that God has given, everything that, that God gave to mankind in terms of his direct revelation was through this people Israel. And yet none of them have the same strength of faith as the centurion. Imagine how that would feel. Imagine you today are walking down the street, and Jesus appears next to you. And there's some Muslim man who's converted to Christianity, brand new Christian, just you know five minutes ago, and you happen to show up next to him, and, and you're talking to this guy, and Jesus whispers in your ear, you do not have as much faith as this guy. How would that feel? 
that feel good? No, no, it would not. And not only just you, but everyone else you know, everyone else in your church, everyone else in your state, everyone else in your country, ain't nobody got the faith of this one dude. That is a blatant condemnation on the, on the nation of Israel at the time, the people. They were the heirs of the prophets and promises, and yet they don't have faith. Not nearly as much as this man. A Gentile, which is a non-Jew, somebody that's kind of spat on. A Gentile military occupationer has greater faith in the covenant-keeping God than anyone among Israel. And, Je- and Jesus illustrates this monolithic faith in verses 11 through 12. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into, into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So for the sake of time, I'd like to just unravel what Jesus is saying briefly. When he says many will come from east and west, think about a map. Like if you get a map today, if you go to the store and you get a global map, uh, some of them will have the United States as the center of the map. Some. Why? Because that's where we're from. It's the center of all of our geography. When, you, when, you're, traveling, uh, when you're traveling to Canada, which way do you go? North. Okay, well, what if you were in China? Which way would you go? <laughs> we think in terms of the central location of where we are and go therefore. So Jesus is thinking the same. Israel, in his mind, of a, geogra- of a, of a whole world map, is the center. So these people are coming from east and west. And they're going to dine with, with, with all these, these men who, who, who represented the promises of God in the kingdom of heaven. And then the sons of the kingdom. Who are the sons of the kingdom? Well, they're the Jews. The Jews are the people that are supposed to, by blood lineage, be people of the kingdom. When I was born, I was, I was born as a citizen of the United States of America. That was my blood lineage because I was geographically born here. And these Jews, who have a blood lineage with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not going to dine with them in the kingdom, in, in, in heaven. Therefore, many will come from outside Israel and rest at the table of, of, of those who receive the promises of God. Uh, those who were not of God's covenantal, uh, covenantal people will enjoy the feasts of heaven, while those who were supposed to be of God's covenantal people will not even be admitted. They'll be thrown out. And not just thrown out of one banquet, not just thrown out of one feast, not just come to the doors and the guard goes, eh, nah, man, you can't come in this time. We're at capacity. No, they're going to be thrown out forever into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The outer place is the place of hell where there's going to be the burning fire of God's wrath causing endless weeping and grinding of teeth. That's what the gnashing is, is where uh, you, you, ever, you ever stub your toes so bad that you're like, and your teeth are clenched tightly together, or hit your finger with a, with a hammer, and instead of going, ah, your teeth 
innate, like just naturally go together. That's what we're talking about. Hell is that constant pain, the burning fire of God's wrath, yet it's outer darkness. There's, the, there's no light of God's goodness remaining in that place. Is that where you want to be? You want to be where there's fire but no light? You want to be where there's pain but no joy? No, of course not. No, no person in their right mind would be like, yeah, that sounds like a party I want to go to. No, we want to go where there's a feast. We want to go where there's, where there's joy and delight. The, these people who should have been people that looked forward to this are going to be thrown out because they did not look forward to it. They did not practice it. They did not have the faith of this Gentile who comes up to Jesus. Those who should have been God's people will not be, and those who should not have been God's people will be. That doubly illustrates point number one, doesn't it? Jesus' authority will be acknowledged by surprising people. I'm a Gentile. I have no blood lineage to, to being a Jew, and I don't even understand how they calculate it now. It's through, like, your mother's side, you know, uh, the, the cousin link twice removed, made a pilgrimage to Israel, and anyway. So I have no idea how they figure it out now, but I have zilch. <laughs> I, I should not be one of God's people in terms of blood lineage, but instead I have a faith lineage. I have trust. I have trust in the un, unending authority of Christ and what mercy that is of God, which, again, doubly illustrates point number two. We should be grateful when God gives us gifts of mercy. How do you think the centurion felt? When, 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 when Jesus turns to him and says, go, let it be done for you as you've believed. Do you think he was like, yeah, man, I knew that was going to happen? <laughs> no. No, I, I, I do not think that is what happened. Christianity is given by grace through faith. It is all the mercy of God. Just like the healing of this paralyzed man was by grace through faith all the mercy of God. Are you grateful for your salvation? If you feel like you're working hard to be grateful, your heart's got to be steered back to resting in his grace. Pray to him about that. Or if you're lackadaisical about your gratitude, moving through the motions of life, expecting God to be merciful to you, then pray to him about that too, because you have more in common with faithless Israel than the centurion in this story. When we come to the final verse in this section, we really can miss the whole point, by the way. We can miss the, the point of this whole section of verses if we're blind or inactive in our faith or ungrateful in heart. Jesus is joyfully marveling at the centurion's faith, deciding to grant the request as the centurion believed. But God is not a cosmic gumball machine expecting you to put a quarter, not a dime, in order to crank the thing and get the, get the gumball you wanted. Faith is not a currency in order to enact blessings. Instead, God delights to declare his authority in your life. Did you know that? God loves, Jesus loves showing his authority in your life. Sometimes, 
That's through escaping a car accident. Sometimes it's through surviving a car accident. Sometimes it's through you having the fortitude and the strength and the faith to go through daily suffering, recognizing that one day you're going to be dining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is still God's authority being displayed in your life. Whether you're going through a hardship or you're going through easy times, may your trust in Christ crush your pride daily, constantly, unendingly. May your pride continue to sink to new, new levels of minuscule. Why? Because you're grateful, because you know God has the authority to do as ever he pleases, knowing that he's a good God and he's not just trying to do things to make you suffer. Instead, he's doing things that'll make heaven oh so much sweeter when you're in his presence. Jesus' authority is displayed whenever he works in our lives. Whether through miraculous or normal means, his authority is sure acknowledge Jesus's authority in all things. Why? Why should you rest in his authority over all things? So that by God's grace, he might marvel at your faith like he did the centurion. Oh, how precious it would be if I became, if, if I went before Christ today, if I went before Christ 50 years from now, if I went before Christ any time, and Jesus smiled at me and said, well done, good and faithful servant. Instead of, it, it, would be, it would be really bad if I got up to heaven and Jesus said, man, oh boy, ooh, that, if my blood wasn't on you, oh, you would not, man, whoo. <laughs> I'd rather have Jesus look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did my sacrifice well. When Jesus' authority in our lives is displayed, it condemns those who disbelieve. And that's what the point of this section is. Is this Gentile who should not have been trusting Jesus trusted Jesus when Israel, who should have trust Jesus, trusted Jesus, didn't. So may Jesus' authority in your lives be graciously and kindly displayed this week. Repent of sins by Jesus' authority and request that his authority be visible to you so that you can better submit. He will provide the grace needed just like he did the centurion and his servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so wonderful. You don't always grant prayers the way that we want, like you did the centurion, but you always know what's best. Make yourself and make your kingdom sweeter to our palates. Open our eyes that we may delight in you better. May your word be, be, be something that we drink to fuel our worship. May, may your word and reading it and, and, and spending time of it be an act of worship in our minds, because that's what it's meant to be. But also let us sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen. May your amazement of Christ 
fuel your continued acceptance of his authority. May you be filled with joy this week, knowing that Jesus has never fallen off his throne. He's never made made a mistake. He is God and king of the universe. Go in peace, saints.